Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 162 for September 19th, 2008. Listener feedback number 50. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. And by Visa. With every purchase, Visa prevents, detects, and resolves online fraud. Safe, secure, Visa. It's time for Security Now, the show where we help you, yes, you, protect yourself online, learn about privacy implications, and uh, just generally get to know, get to geek out on computers with the king of security himself, Mr. Steve Gibson of GRC.com. Hey. It's like the parquet butter boy. He's got his little crown on. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Or is it chiffon? I think it's chiffon. Hello, Steve Arena. How are you? Today? Great to be back with you. As we have for the last 162 weeks. It seems like it's only been 161. So they just fly by, they don't fly they? Fly by. And I'm, I'm. Although last week has been a rough one. Even today, the market's <gasps> down again oh, below man. was on Monday because of the AIG scare. And, uh, you know, we're yeah. very fortunate. In fact, this show in particular is very fortunate because uh, despite the economic downturn, advertisers. Have have continued to support in uh, the Twit Network to the point where we're pretty much sold out, and we got approached by another company that wants to advertise on your show, and I had to say, you know, we've got three spots on here. I can't put any more on. Now Visa was doing a relatively short buy. When right? Visa leaves, we will have a new, and you will like this advertiser. I will run it by you, of course, as I always do. You get the right of approval, but I don't think we'll have you'll have any trouble with this company. Well, good. I, in fact, I think you'll be. Oh, I'm going to say the name. VeriSign. <gasps> no kidding. Yeah. Oh, cool. And I think it's really because of uh, the focus that you put on what they're doing with their uh, secure login uh, technology. Yeah, actually, I've got an email um, from uh, one of the VeriSign guys, uh, Gary, that I haven't yet even gotten to read. I've got it open. I bet that's what it's about. It may well be a bunch of of news on their end. Yeah, so. but I think we've had to tell them, um, yes, but you'll be waiting a little bit. We have... <laughs> well, you know, people love you. This, this, you have been. Astaro has been with us for more than two years. Audible's with us for more than a year. Uh, Visa, who knows? They may not ever want to leave, and so I can't complain. I'm very happy. And despite the economic downturn, the good. What the good news is is we're going to keep going with this show uh, and all the shows in the Twit Network as long as the advertisers and the audience continue to support us as they have. And there is no sign of us running out of any material. I have some. I have. For, I'm saving for the last. Some horrific new oh. revelations oh. about Google's Chrome browser. Oh, interesting. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what are we um, going to... This isn't a Q&A episode. Yes, it is. It is. All right. 162 is... And it's actually... It's it's our 50th Q&A episode. That's kind of neat. Yeah, so you're going to want to fire up your email and grab I a will. copy of PDF. And we're going to get uh, the latest security news in just a bit as well. But before yep. we do any of that, maybe I should mention these good people at Visa, since they have been so 
helpful in uh, keeping this podcast on the air. Visa advertises on security now because they want you to know one thing, that when you use your Visa card, you are secure, you're safe. Whether you're shopping online or off, you could think about your purchases, you can enjoy your meal with the peace of mind that knowing that when you use your Visa card, you don't have to worry about online fraud. All the purchases you make with Visa are safe and secure. thing I like about Visa is essentially the customer comes first. They represent you. If the merchant gives you a hard time, if somebody steals your credit card number, no problem. You come first. Zero liability. It's simple. You're not liable for unauthorized purchases. They use sophisticated real-time fraud monitoring technology to identify and respond to fraudulent activity, to prevent it, to detect it, and to resolve it when it occurs. That's peace of mind. You're safe. You're secure. Make sure you use your Visa card the next time you shop. All right, now I get it. I've got to give them some credit for being safe and secure. No problems, they assure. It's Visa, Visa, Visa. Mm-hmm. Jeff Smith for dressing up our Visa commercials a little bit. There's some high production value. So, Steve Gibson, do you want to you want to save the bad news for later, or do you want to deliver uh, it right now? No, no, I will. Uh, we got plenty of bad news oh, for, <laughs> throughout God. the entire throughout the entire show. Okay. Um, uh, I did want to mention that there was the um, Apple OS X ten point five point five. Yes, came out uh, thirty three fixes. Released. I know a huge number of things. Um, uh, even the ability. To they they fixed there was a way that users could log in without a password or change another user's password. What? Oh yes. Oh my goodness! I didn't know about that. Wow. So a ton of vulnerabilities, arbitrary code execution problems, denial of service, uh, and some DNS cache poisoning. So so they've they've addressed that, which we knew they were we, we were hoping they were going to. And yeah, so they, they, have, they had they did a fix in January, which didn't fix it. Right. Right. So it's a good thing. They- they and they also back. did. They also did some fixes for not, some of their stuff, some of the open source components that were really not their problem, but you know, they're, it's it's in their system and right. they're shipping it. They provided it, so they've got to take some responsibility for it. Um, also in the bad news category, I wanted to alert people. Uh, there have been a, some huge problems under Windows after the iTunes eight update. Um. Windows oh, blue screens of death. Yes, Windows is blue screening of deathing. Is that, is that a BSO? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> blue screening it's of deathing. A little participling, but that's good. <laughs> wait, blue screen of deathing. Yeah, just yes. one ing. Blue screen of deathing. Um, it's caused by um, an up a, a newer version of a gear add-on. You know that gear is a is a well-known provider of drivers for CD and DVD, DVD burning. And so in this newer version of iTunes, um, Apple is installing a new ASPI module, Gear ASPI WDM.sys. And that's apparently the, the source of the BSODs. They don't occur until you plug in your iPod, which invokes the driver to jump in and help out, and then your system BSODs. Wow. So not good. Wow. Now, does Gear come from Apple or does Gear come from somebody else? Well, Gear is is from a company called Gear. They're oh. a German outfit, and in fact, I own a, a Gear Pro Professional. Is their their writer because I think I mentioned to you in my in my main media machine, I've got four burners. Right. You you were chuckling over what, what do I need four burners from? It's well, you know, 
I only have to burn one quarter as many times when I'm doing a little I short. Even, I don't even know what you're up to. I don't short production. You don't so, burn your own. You don't burn your own spin right discs. No, no, no. no people no, download no, no. that. They burn them. Yeah, it's just, yeah, I, yeah. It's just you know when I want to share things like you know like for example there was there some friends of mine missed both first and second shots of the first episode of Fringe and by the way I should say that we got a ton of email from people thanking me for aiming them at fringe they very much liked catching it the re the repeat of it last sunday we're getting a I lot had. of requests to do a uh, a security now sci-fi show <laughs> it's a sci-fi sh- and i th- i can't figure out if the requests are because they want us to stop talking about sci-fi and security now or that they like it so much they want us to do more of it for what it's worth i get i do get a, a lot of feedback from people who want to hear more i yeah. guess the, the the same sort of stuff you're talking about. I mean, pe- there are a lot of people who would not have seen Fringe, they, they, they wrote, had I not mentioned it and said, hey, I think this right. is worth checking out. Right. And, uh, and so they were glad they had missed it. So, so that was cool. I also, since I last talked to you, Leo, um, actually it was the day after we last spoke, I was joined for coffee at 530 in the morning by Stina Evansfar. Oh, you're kidding. That's great. Yeah. She was down at the demo, uh, at the demo show in um at the, which was the beginning of the prior week beginning of a week before last or well no last week um she's a creator of yubiki yubiki at yubico and i it was really fun we we spent a couple hours and i got a complete update on what's going on they're doing fantastically um i had i had known from from email that i shared with her which i mentioned on the show before that there was a lot more free of uh, open source stuff being done mm-hmm. um which is all available for download at 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 uh, on their at their site ubico.com um but they're also they've they've lined up some venture capital so they're going to make the next step forward in in going from a a generic chip to their own custom chip oh that's neat and what well what's significant is it will dramatically lower their cost, which they intend to pass on to customers. So it's going to bring the, the cost of the YubiKey down dramatically because they'll be able to, to bring their, their own costs substantially down. Um, so that's going to be neat. The other thing that um, there were two things that I asked her if I could share with our listeners. The first is that um, they're getting ready to start growing the company. And she asked me if I knew of any good, like suits sorts of people. (laughs) Um, She's tired of, she's tired of wearing the suit. She's just not a suits person. No. And, but she, she needs, which is why we love her by the way. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you know, to, 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 to grow forward, you know, she needs like sales and marketing type people who are familiar with the tech industry. And I said, well, you know, I'm sort of, a hermit down here in Southern California. I said, but Leo may know people. Um, and I said, but, but even more so, you know, our listeners are people. I figure so, if you listen to the show, you're probably a good candidate for this job. Well, I mean, and you exactly, you, you know, security, you right. know, the product and oh, you they, obviously and have they, to have some business experience. They're looking for uh, operating uh, people, right? So, they're looking, yes, for, for, for operating and, and also, um, uh, not really so much on on the tech side. I think they've right. got that well covered. But but operating and business development sorts of people, because 
there are things that I cannot talk about that are that are in the works that are very exciting oh, neat. that 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 um, I'll be able to talk about when Stina says, you know, this this can be discussed publicly. But I, I should say that it's just lots of good stuff is going on. This it's very it's very clear that that the people who see this um, understand it. She mentioned, in fact, that she ran across um, the ex editor in chief of PC Mag um, and she only remembered his name as Michael. And I said, oh, oh Michael, Michael Miller. Miller. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. And I, and I told her, I have a long history oh, sure. with Michael. He was my editor. He edited the Tech Talk column right. for the eight, for most of the eight years that I was at InfoWorld. And anyway, so he apparently came by where she was sharing a booth with someone. And, you know, she was like sort of holding it up in the air and saying, do you have an interest in, an interest in authentication? Anyway, Michael... To his credit, you know, because he is a, a techie also. What's he doing Insta- now? Is he instantly? I don't know. She's. I guess he's no longer editor in chief, but I think he's still writing a column. He's paying attention, obviously, because he's a, yeah, yeah. A, and he was present for the for the demo conference. So, right. but you know, again, my, Michael instantly got and understood what this That's thing neat. was. That's really neat. so. Of course, yeah. Did. So anyway, yeah. so so things are really happening for them. So I did want to mention, um, for if you are a listener. Or you know somebody who's technically savvy um, and maybe looking around for the right kind of opportunity up on the peninsula because they will be they are moving. She is moving her family and herself and and the company essentially to Northern California just mostly to be, you know, in the middle of where all the action is Uh, and and all kinds of talent pool. So uh, so that's happening. And finally, they're going to do. And she the, the she hasn't figured out all the details yet, but she's going to host a, a contest with a number of different categories focused around most innovative applications for the YubiKey. And I have agreed to be a judge on the panel for you know coolest, neatest ideas for the YubiKey. So that may also be something that our listeners would be interested in. You know, cooking up an idea and and um. And and entering that the contract doesn't exist yet. I would imagine like a month from now, and she's considering maybe announcing the winners at the at next year's RSA conference. Cool. So cool. where she will have a booth of her own this year, as we all remember, she didn't last year. I met her or I bumped into her at the top of the escalator when she was looking around for someone who would understand what what they had done. So <laughs> very cool. Well, that's yeah. nice to hear. She's she seems like a very nice person. Yeah, and I just I I really wish them well. I think they're it looks like they've they've got something good that is going to go. I might as well mention that we're looking for somebody to not not nearly nobody in a suit, but uh, we are looking for somebody to uh, who lives in the Petaluma area, the Northern California area, who can commute and come to our office because we can't do this. Uh, uh, long distance to edit audio for us and work with us in audio and video editing. And if you uh, you don't have to have any skills in that area, if you're comfortable with computers, just email Dane. It's jobs at twit.tv. Jobs at twit.tv. And uh, now, what about Tony? I thought he was. We, we're Tony's full time. We're 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 we're, <laughs> we're going. So Tony's going to move more toward the video side because we want to start putting out video, and uh, that's a full time job, believe it or not, to get video out the door. So Tony will go more to the video side, and then we'll have somebody doing audio as well. Uh, so yeah, we have we have to expand a little bit. It's expensive to. Uh, to do all this stuff, but you know, we got to jump while the iron's hot. Advertisers are asking us for more products. 
So Very we'll, cool. we'll give it to them. And will this mean more shows? Are, you, will, are we be I doing... can't do more shows. <laughs> no. Your but sketch is already full. It's right? already full. We're going to do more video. So we're, we're doing a lot of video. For instance, we've got, we're going to do interviews with Will Wright coming up, Neil Stevenson coming up. I have some very interesting interviews, all that we kind of do ad hoc in the studio with people who show up, uh, like um, uh, from Red Dwarf, uh, Bob Llewellyn, played Crichton right. in Red Dwarf. He was great. Right. So we want to start putting these out because if you don't see them live, uh, chances are you're not going to see it at all. So we want to put them out as something you could download. And the only thing holding us back at this point, we've got a bandwidth commitment from the Cashfly folks, which is wonderful. We've got uh, we've got uh, advertiser commitments, but we're just we need an editor that, so we can put because, you know, it's hard to put as you know, video is a little bit more complicated than audio. Yep. Yep. Well, that's cool. I know we have a, there. There's someone who participates over in the news groups, uh, GRC's news groups, who captures the stream weekly. Right. And in several instances, there have been people who have really wanted to watch the stream. I did not and, think this would be a video show, but but it, seeing you somehow makes it easier to understand what you're saying. It's my creative work. It's with my the hands. hands. <laughs> So uh, while we'll always offer the audio, and that really is our primary medium, uh, for those who want to see, see, say, things like Steve, because uh, we do have video of you, thanks to Skype, uh, we'd like to offer that as well, just as cool. an alternative way to, to download it. Well, my last little blurb before we plow into our questions um, is a, a, a listener, Key Il Song, I think is how I would pronounce his name. He, uh, the subject was Spinrite Does It Again. And he said, I'm writing this while listening to the latest episode of Security Now on my Mac. I'm a loyal listener of Security Now and most of the Twit network of netcasts. They're entertaining, informative, and infinitely more enjoyable to listen to on my commute to and from work. There you go. I don't know if this is a good thing, but there are many nights that I fall asleep <laughs> listening to one of the many Twit netcasts. <laughs> Keep it up, Leo and gang. So he says, the reason I'm writing this email is because of my recent experience with Spinrite. My 75-year-old uncle became a widower approximately four to five years ago. For almost a year after my, my aunt passed away, he was lost and depressed after losing his wife of almost 50 years. Oh my. One day, one of his closest friends told him that he needed to get over it and move on with life. He proceeded to give him a laptop, an internet connection, email, and a digital camera. I think that's a great idea. It was really neat. And he says, can you believe it? A 70-plus-year-old learning how to use a computer, digital camera, and email. He became so obsessed with his camera, computer, email that he would never go anywhere without the camera. He would take pictures of everything from flowers, landscapes, and I, got, I love this one, and pictures of old pictures and events that he attended and then email these to his friends all over the world. He also became the resident photographer for our family. He had over 50 gigs of photos and videos oh. that he had taken over the past several years. Well, you know where this is going. Yep. He says, last week, my uncle called me and told me that his laptop was broken. It wouldn't boot up. I went over to his house and saw that the Windows boot screen was in an infinite loop. Oh, boy. I tried to see if I could go into safe mode to fix the problem from there, but it wouldn't even get into safe mode. It had the same result as normal mode, infinite loop at boot screen. I told him I would take his laptop home and see if I could fix it. So I took it home, booted into Spinrite, and ran it for several hours. 
It came up with several errors the first round. Excited, I booted into Windows, and <laughs> voila, it worked. It's kind of fun, but it's true. You are happy to see errors when you run SpinRite, because that might explain why you're having problems. Exactly. It's fixing things. Yeah. And, 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 and he says, for safe measure, I ran SpinRite again to see if it would find any more errors. It found no errors the second and third times. At that point, I called my uncle and told him that his computer was fixed and his library of photos and videos from the past several years were saved. Yay. Thanks. Yay. Yep. That's a, that's a, that's a nice story. I like, hearing, I like hearing that. Hey, before we get to uh, the questions, we got some good emails, 12 questions and answers. And bad Chrome news. And, ba- and the bad Chrome news of the week. <laughs> <laughs> Before we do that, though, I do want to mention Audible.com and our great sponsor, Audible, have been with us for well over a year now. Audible are the folks that do all those great audio books, the ones I've been listening to for since 2001. I am now up to 350 books I've listened to Audible. I love Audible. I have jammed more stuff into my brain thanks to Audible than I could ever have done by trying to read. You know, I don't know about you, but when I get to bed at night, uh, you know, I fire up the Kindle. Eh, two, three pages, and I'm out. <laughs> I'm out. And so the thing about Audible is you can listen to books while you're doing stuff, driving, gardening. I, I use it at the gym every day when I walk. I don't drive as much as I used to. I walk to work a lot. But it's great to listen to Audible books while you're walking. It just puts a spring in your step, and, man, you just the stuff you learn. Now, of course, Audible's been doing a great job in capturing uh, the entire science fiction oeuvre Science fiction, as you might know, traditionally has not been, uh, you know, rep- well represented in audiobooks. It's because the, you know, most of the science fiction publishers are shoestring operations. They're not going to spend the money making audio, and yet, I got to tell you, science fiction is so great because these books are written for the ear. They're written to come alive in your mind, and when you listen to them, they really do come alive. So I want you to go to the uh, Audible Frontiers section. These are these are books that have never before been on audio. They're science fiction that's never before been recorded, audio recorded by Audible for the first time. And so there's a ton, you know, Clifford D. Cimac, Rod, Roger Zelazny, uh, some of the great sci-fi authors, Fritz Lieber, uh, have now been recorded for the first time, exclusive productions of Audible. Uh, and I encourage you, just if you go to audible.com, to look at the Frontiers section and just see all of the great sci-fi. I have to say, I'm just thrilled. This has been a major commitment from Audible. They built nine studios just to do this. Take a look. Pick one. Uh, my pick of the week, uh, I'm waiting for Anathem, which is Neil Stevenson's new book. I understand they are recording it, but it's a bit of, it's a long book. So I'm going to pick another Neil Stevenson book, another one that I actually had a hard time getting through in uh, in text but have loved in audio. I'm talking about the Quicksilver or the Baroque cycle, starting with Quicksilver. All of the Baroque cycle books are now on Audible. That's over 60 hours. 60 hours. Uh, in fact, they have uh, Stina Nielsen and Simon Preble. There's that name, Stina again. A man and a woman doing Quicksilver. This is the way to get into it. It is much, much better, uh, I think, to listen to this. It really comes alive in a way that I, the written word did not for me. Cryptonomicon is not part of that? Cryptonomicon pre, 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 was the book he wrote okay. right before the Baroque cycle. Oh, okay. They also have Cryptonomicon. Um, his books are so long that uh, I have to say the only negative is they are uh, some of them are abridged. 
notes. When I, when I glue things, I use those books to hold yeah. the <laughs> quick Quicksilver abridged is 21 hours. <laughs> abridged. So uh, it's a good way to get started. You might still want to go out and get the book, but I'll tell you what, I can get it for you for free. Just go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. If you're not yet an Audible member, you get to pick a book, any book from the Audible collection. You get a credit toward it. And that means you can listen to it. And if you, you, no charge. If you decide not to stick around, you get to keep it too. And now it plays on the Zune. So pretty much every device in, in, in history. And I mean, iPods, Zunes, many, many GPSs, TomTom, Nuvi, uh, Magellans, uh, of course, the, uh, the Kindle. Audible plays on them all, your computer even, and CDs. So give it a try. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support of the Security Now program. Steve, I have in my hand 12 fabulous questions written by... Little do you know. These are, we actually have, this is really good stuff this week. I'm really pleased with these. Better than, better than usual? Well, there's, there's, there's sort of some themes. There's a well, there's a strong Wells Fargo theme. There were a lot of people who wrote in about various pros and cons of Wells Fargo. And some people, I have to point out, some people did say that they thought it was okay, but we'll, we'll get to that. In fact, one of those that you forwarded to me is is here right. okay. also. Good. And yeah, it's just some great, good, really good stuff. Let's start with Vic Thompson. He's in Newcastle, Australia. He says he heard our tip just in time. Steve, I'm a retired, as in unpaid, medium-level geek and an avid listener to the Netcast. He says, I say that for Leo. A friend of mine was about to commit his PC to the deep after a major dismemberment of his OS by, at that point, an unknown event. Even though he managed to get it back to working order, the sword of Damocles remained hanging over his head, and he still was going to load the PC into his boat, although without concrete overshoes. Then I caught up with the latest Security Now episode, and all was explained by your mention of the trend micro problem. That's what bit him. Yep. Wow. There's very little notification anywhere about this, so you were the only light on the hill for us. I am not only a SpinRight owner, but also a SpinRight advocate to all who will listen, and even to those who will not. Thanks for the great pod. Oops. Netcast, Vic Thompson, Newcastle, Australia. Um, Vic was one of a number of people who mentioned that this like clicked in their heads. They, you know, their the, the trend micro update. As you remember, I mentioned last week caused a bunch of problems for people because it false positive identified Windows own OS mm. files as being, you know, due to heuristic pattern matching as being malicious, and it sequestered them. And then Windows would no longer boot, even in safe mode, and wow. caused a, a ton of problems for people. So I did want to—I wanted just to reiterate that uh, to thank. What's Vic the for solution? Um, it's bad. Um, you need to use somebody else's computer to go to Trend and and pursue a solution involving, you know, getting those files back out of jail somehow. Ugh. I didn't pursue it all because you know it didn't didn't hurt me and. No one that I know or love. So, and presumably, Trend has updated their viruses, antivirus, to not do that anymore. I would yeah, hope. and and in all in all fairness, this is it's actually this is the second time Trend has done this, but it also did happen with Symantec once a, a few years ago that they did the same thing. So, I mean, it's it's risky. It, it must be that they're checking different language versions because it's hard to imagine how they wouldn't be able to. check their own windows system to make sure that it didn't you know bring it to its knees well yeah and uh this is why many antiviruses don't do the job they used to do because virus well 
any antivirus should be hesitant to quarantine Windows system files, right? I mean, uh, you're killing the baby to to save the to save the patient. And um, although the problem is, they they due, due due to the fact that viruses name the uh, you know malware deliberately names files right. in you know in in with overlapping names, it might put in you know so it it, it might very well put a a um a, a malicious code under a different directory with the name of a valid windows file so or it attach use- itself to an to an existing windows file sure exactly so this is but, but i'm in, this is what i'm saying most antiviruses now will just say hey it's a windows file i'm not going to touch it but you got a problem here you got to figure yeah. it out but see trend just said nah i don't care i'm going to kill the patient because automatic is just so wonderful uh, we don't want to have to train our users uh, or have them take any responsibility god yeah ofer Ofer, hello, Ofer. Our old friend Ofer writes to uh, the Daily Gizwiz frequently. Ofer, no ba- kidding. Yeah, Ofer Bannery and Laguna oh, Niguel. Right. Pardon me. I was going to say he's the guy who also wrote to you, yes, trying to get wrote the to, note to me. He wrote to me first. Yep. He says uh, he's got some good news about Wells. First, when I log on and put extra characters at the end of my password, uh, it's it's rejected. This is contrary to what the, your listener said last week. Secondly, as reported by others, it is true that neither username or password is case sensitive, but no one has mentioned that after failing three times to log in, the session is terminated and the user ID is locked out. That happens to me on a lot of sites. It drives me crazy because it often takes me four tries. I'm speaking for myself, Leo, now. It often takes me four tries to, to get the password right. In order to regain access, you need to provide the ATM card number and PIN and answer a security question. Then you need to assign a new password. As a result of this stringent lockout policy, while the lack of case-sensitive username and password is an issue, I think the site's plenty secure, says Ofer. If Steve wants to discuss Wells Fargo any further, please ask him to include that lockout feature and any security problems it may expose. I am not an employee of Wells Fargo, just a happy and, I believe, secure customer. Well, this is really good news because uh, because a, a lockout policy is... Super important, right. and it and, and as Ofer believes, uh, he's certainly correct. It it shuts down any attempt at doing password guessing. You where can't you're do just a brute do- force if you only get three chances, right? They're, I mean, just not feasibly. Right. Now, somebody else wrote, and I didn't have space to include it in in today's Q and A, but he had been experimenting with Wells, and apparently, it's the first six. It's the first fourteen characters of. I don't know if I'm not sure if it's username or password and or password, but but at least password, the first 14 characters are significant. And after that 14, any additional characters are ignored. So it is still the case that extra characters are ignored, but not until you've got 14 that are not ignored, which we know is a long and that's fundamentally secure password. Yeah, yes. That's pretty good. So you, or at least potentially secure password. Yeah. yeah. But I did, is, you know, with all of the bashing we've been giving Wells over the last few weeks, I, the fact that they do a, th- a three, you know, three strikes and you're out lockout and then require the user to go through, you know, much greater hoops in order to prove that they're really themselves or, or well, maybe Leo, um, it, it is the case that, you know, that that really does mitigate the problem a lot. Yeah. Almost all my financial institutions do that. They'll lock you out if you keep if you keep guessing. Yep. And I know that because I almost always have to, <laughs> to guess. What I hate is one of them makes me call them. Uh, two of them do what Wells does, which is, OK, well, we're going to have to go through some more hoops for you to reset your password. 
Yes. I don't mind. I don't mind that. But if I could stay online, but when I have to call them, that's just a pain. And then, you know, I've been using B of A and what I turned on, I have quite a few B of A accounts, Bank of America accounts. I, I hope, <laughs> I hope well, B of A, B of, Bank a. of the world. <laughs> yeah. They own everything now. Uh, I, uh, but what's nice is, uh, I've set it up. You, it's not a requirement, but they encourage you to set it up so that each time you log in, it sends a passcode to your cell phone, very much like the football, a one-time login passcode to guarantee that it's really me. That makes me feel so much better when it does that. Well, yeah, in fact, we've talked about using a cell phone loop to provide an additional factor in multi-factor yeah. authentication. I think that it's, makes tons of sense. Yeah, I, f- I turned it on on all my accounts. It drives our bookkeeper crazy because she has to well, call, it, it, call it, me. It actually but... works. It actually works both ways too, because if you if your phone starts ringing with with authentications and it's not you, oh, then point. you also have affirmative knowledge that somebody is trying to log into your account. That's a very very good point. Yeah. Now I think every every you know high security application should use some form of of uh, two 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 uh, what do you call it two layer authentication. Yeah, multi-factor authentication. Yeah, I just think yeah. it's just it just really makes a huge. It just, of course, I would I only know that because I've because I do this show with you. <laughs> I don't know if everybody knows that. This makes me feel better. John Kuhn, well, and in, go ahead. That, that that is directly what Yubico and the YubiKey right. are doing too. Because right. if you know if that system were widely deployed, as hopefully at some point it may be, you could just you know stick it into a USB port and touch the little button, and it would shoot out some characters that right. absolutely prove it's it's your YubiKey. I like that. Then somebody would have to get me, my YubiKey, my login, and my password. Ha-ha! Good luck. Good luck. John Kuhn in Ann Arbor, Michigan, has discovered that Wells Fargo is in bad company. Oh, boy. After hearing about Wells Fargo on the Security Now podcast, I decided to try out all of my GRC Perfect Password-derived passwords, all of them alphanumeric with upper and lower case. I found that Chase, Citibank, Vanguard, and my credit union all have non-case-sensitive passwords. Just thought you might find that interesting. So, uh, Wells Fargo is sharing the doghouse with these other people, but given that they've got lockout provisions, and I imagine that our listeners may now be curious to poke at their, right. you know, like deliberately log in incorrectly and see what it takes, you know, verify, in fact, that anyone trying to guess their passwords will be shut down very quickly and then have to go through the extra re-authenticating, you know, hoop jumping in order to get their account reactivated, which, again, it certainly does mitigate the the problem of passwords being non-case sensitive. There's got to be a reason they're doing this. Is it is it possible uh, that some older computers or older... Matter of fact, if you keep reading, you we will come ah, to the reason. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Steve is always way ahead of me. Uh, Brent McLaren in Ajax, which is near Toronto in Ontario, Canada, brings up a very good point about case-insensitive banking passwords. Speak of the devil. (laughs) Uh, He says, um, hi, Steve. Been listening to Security Now since episode one. I really enjoy the show. Me too. Even though I work in IT and spend my days working with security and networking technology, I found your insight and ability to explain complex topics very valuable. So I just wanted to pipe in on the topic of case insensitivity for Wells Fargo's online banking login. I know that for my bank, the password used for online banking is shared with telephone banking. As a result, the password has to be limited to alphanumeric passwords with no case sensitivity. It's also limited to six characters. I believe this is one of those trade-offs between security and usability 
that is necessary, having separate passwords for the different channels, would be beyond confusing to people. That's a very good point. Isn't that a good point? I, I like that because you could imagine trying to trying to explain to somebody that you've got, you know, what a circumflex is or. <laughs> I don't think there's a circumflex on my phone. I... Yeah, no, or, you're right. You know, the pound sign, the what? They will, that's that yeah. number sign, the thing, you know, the lines, you know. I mean, so if passwords were, were really complex, it could be difficult for them to be used in the, the same password to be used, yeah, essentially repurposed through through different venues with the same institution. And so it's like, okay, I uh, that that makes some sense. You can imagine that trying to explain your password over the phone to somebody could be a problem, much more so than you know you typing in some strange concoction with shift keys and so forth on your keyboard. And I, I actually remember that I got started in online banking with Bank of America in 1984 or something with phone banking. And so I, I think that probably it's the same system it's been all along. In fact... In fact, and this is what made me ask the question earlier, I remember it was almost a TTY the first time I started doing online banking. A blank, a black screen would come up with white letters on it, all uppercase. The menu structure would be, you know, type one for this item, type two. I mean, it was very primitive, and I bet you it's the same back end. It may very well be. In yeah. fact, they just stuck a web server on the yeah. front of it. Yeah, it's looking better than it used to, I have to, <laughs> I have to say. But I for, for a long time, online banking, for me... Uh, was that it was it was it was like a tty david townsend in wimbledon uk worries about his employer hi steve i live in the uk work for a large blue tip blue chip computer consultancy we have a timesheet and expense system that is used globally by the company over the internet feeds directly into our central billing system the site not ssl and to make matters worse there's no <laughs> no password expiration no lockouts after x attempts and the passwords are not case-sensitive. I've written to my company formally two times, but my concerns have fallen on deaf ears. The company believes that because it has not been hacked yet, they are completely safe with HTTP, and my concerns are just scaremongering. I feel ashamed to actually be working for this company with such a lax attitude to security, especially since the company is involved with IT development. You think my concerns are real threats here? What are the risks the company's exposing themselves to? Could the HTTP traffic be sniffed? Are there other concerns they'd need to be aware of? I'm hoping if you answer this, that I'll have some real evidence to go back with a company to the company with and get this changed before we are attacked. Well, you know, our listeners, any any listeners who've been listening for uh, 162 or 161 previous weeks know a lot about this and of course david who is a li- who is a listener knows, he knows. that he has yeah. that he has absolute cause for being concerned and and clearly he does the the question i think is in order to sufficiently understand the the threat model of the system is you, we have to know how is the system really being used that is if you assume that somebody unauthorized is going to have access to this, you know, what is the consequence of that? I, I, you know, it's, it, you know, he's saying that it's, that it's their timesheet and expense system that's directly tied into central billing. So the question would be, you know, if somebody maliciously had access to this, what does it mean? You know, the, you know, the response he seems to be getting from, from the company's IT people are that there's, 
not a problem. I mean, to quoting him, he says, they are completely safe because they've never been hacked. Well, no, the world is full of people who are, are, well, they're not safe because they've never been hacked, but they have a false sense of security because they've never been hacked. And, you know, it takes, you know, a company losing millions of, of employee confidential information or credit card information that's sold on the Internet or, you know, one of these horrific events to realize, you know, it, that his reputation has been damaged and to say, ouch, he actually, in his letter, provided me some additional information about the that, that he asked me to keep confidential about the system that they're using. I did some research, and it's a third-party tool, not the company's own tool, which apparently provides you know this level of insecurity. So it's not just this one company that's using this. This is a tool that is that is globally used widely, and so all the companies that are using this particular internet-based timesheet and expense system are exposed and which to me given the fact that this is that, that the security at the login that this is a freely available public server i went to this website and looked at the front end it was from there that i figured out what the package was that was running behind it and i then went to that company and explored them a little bit to see you know who this was and how pervasive this was so i mean and it's it's a well-known, successful company that has incredibly insecure login policies. Um, I mean, it's 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 irresponsible, you know. In in like I I would say, um, in first of all, the company that David works for has got their head buried in the sand. Um, but more importantly, that this is a commercial product being offered by a company. At, so certainly at some expense to their clients that has, you know, zero um, login security. Yeah. So um, mm. it's it's definitely a bad idea. You know, the other the the temptation, I think, for employees uh, like David uh, is to prove it by logging in insecurely and and demonstrating how easy it is to hack. And I got to warn people about that. I was going to say it yep. just happened again that a, that a guy who got so frustrated with his company's security policies that he hacked in and, and, and got some password information and then sent it to the uh, president and said, look, I've been telling you about this. Look, see what I got? And of course, he, he's going, he went to jail. Uh, in fact, our good friend Randall Schwartz did the same thing at Intel some years ago and was arrested and tried for hacking. Uh, companies don't take well to being having their nose rubbed in it, <laughs> let's, let's say. Uh, so be careful about how far you go to prove the point. So you know, just to answer the his question, the that that site and the same login page for everyone else using this company's timesheet and expense system software. And you know, I don't have it in front of me. I ought to tell everyone the name of that company because they they deserve to be in the doghouse. Um, although I guess that would expose anyone who had access to them to you know. I mean, we'd be making it obvious that these people are really attackable. So I'd be better to send them a private email and say, look, this yes. is just not okay. Um, they are they are exposing all of their clients. The fact that this is that does not require SSL definitely means that this can be sniffed. If if in any situation there was wireless, then anyone with a wireless uh, with a wireless system could be logging all the traffic, seeing people log into this timesheet and expense system 
capture their login um, and then do the, the, I mean the only thing we don't know is what level of mischief someone could get themselves up to I, I, I would so so in in summary this is the question I would ask David to 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 pose to his company's management and that is to say uh, it, it's very much like the analogy I draw with Wi-Fi if you know when I try to explain why wireless is so dangerous I say okay plug a wire into your wired hub and run it out the front door <laughs> to the lawn where, and then stick a stake in the lawn with a sign that says free internet access. That's good. <laughs> I mean, it, you're doing the same thing with, with, with wireless. So, yeah. you know, do you want any random stranger 24 seven to be able to, you know, plug into your hub no. in your home no. and, and see what's going on. So, so similarly, David ought to pose the question as, okay, here's, you know, here's the worst case. Is there anyone that you would really be unhappy giving free and unfettered access to the timesheet and expense system? I mean, anyone, because essentially depending upon the exposure that people logging into this system have. And he says this is used globally by the company over the Internet, which means random people of this large blue-chip computer consultancy are sitting in Starbucks and, and you know, random Wi-Fi hotspots logging in to the timesheet and expense system. There's no question, then, that that login is sniffable and open and is compromisable. So this this company needs to ask itself, you know, what damage could somebody do um, who has access to the system? Because that's what they're making possible. Yeah. Wow. Very scary. Moving moving on to our uh, our next call here, or it's not a call; it's a question from Amominus. He says, "I didn't. I don't want this to be public, but I like to use." the PPP, Perfect Paper Password System, but I'd like to generate passwords that follow certain rules. Uh, for instance, I want to say, must be mixed case, must contain at least one digit. Is that possible with a web application or with the EXE application? That's sometimes a requirement of some systems. I, you know, I run into that all the time where it says, well, I like your password, but you got to put a digit in it. Well, I love the question. The reason I made it anonymous, I actually know who this is, but he sent it to... GRC uh, to to Greg, our tech support guy, which Greg forwarded to me. So he didn't intend me. I don't know that he intended me right, to, to make this it. public right, right, right. and to read it. But but I, I wrote him a, a lengthy reply because I thought it was sort of an interesting question for our listeners from a from a theoretical security standpoint. So here we've got the perfect paper password system. Now, as it was designed, that's a one time only system. So the individual tokens are short, and certainly they're not they're not correct they're they're not appropriate for long term static password use. But in the final evolution, I think it was the third major revamp of the perfect paper password system, which we remember was even more perfect paper passwords. Um, we allowed them to be any length, so you absolutely can use both the online web-based version or the XE to with the appropriate command line options to make 
really good, really random, really long passwords. You know, you can make them, you know, as long as you want. Basically use it as a a, a random password generating uh, or string generator. So then, then the idea of saying, oh, but they have to, you know, what if they have to have mixed case? Then, you know, can that be enforced? Or what if they have to have some digits? And, and okay, well, frankly, that lowers the security. I mean, it actually does. And, and that's the point. That's the reason I, I wanted to add this to this week's Q&A is the reason that those sorts of requirements like mixed case must have several you know uppercase characters or lowercase characters must contain at least one digit those are enforced on passwords generated by people because people don't generate high quality random passwords they you know use all lowercase because it's easier for them or they will you know deliberately or they won't use any digits, so their passwords tend to be in dictionaries or would be prone to brute force attack, whereas salting them with a couple digits, forcing some digits in, breaks brute force attack possibility. But taking a system which is generating highly random, I mean really, really, really high-quality random passwords, and then imposing on it some such rules reduces the strength because an attacker who knew which rules were being imposed would would then reject passwords that that broke those rules and, and, and essentially you are by imposing those rules against a system which is already generating really high quality passwords ends up lowering the security of the system mm. because you're you're discarding a large subset of passwords forcing a, a smaller rule set on them. So I just thought, you know, that that's essentially what, what I told the person who wrote, and he actually replied, and he says, I understand what you said, thank you for the explanation, but I wanted to use these in systems that enforce those rules. And it's like, well, okay, so put something, you know, I mean, manually change the case, and, uh, and you know, if, if it happens that you get a long password without a digit in it, then put some in. You can, with the perfect paper password system, you're also able to specify the alphabet. So you could specify an alphabet with upper and lower case oh, alpha. Oh. And, all, and also, if you wanted to make sure you had numbers, you could put in 0 through 9, 0 through 9, 0 through 9. That is, if you specify those three times, you'll get th then digits are three times more likely to occur than they otherwise would. So that uh, and essentially, what that means is that you'll 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 tend to have in a sufficiently long password. It'll be extremely rare that you get one that doesn't have digits in it. On the other hand, the perfect paper password system also generates them endlessly. So you could just you know cross out the ones that don't obey the rules that you need and keep the ones that do, which is probably the right solution. Very good. Let's see here. Uh, Carl Schweitzer in Hilbert, Wisconsin, says. Why is it all just zeros and ones? Why aren't there any twos in there? Dear Steve and Leo, this is a topic that's been brewing in my head for some time. And I'd like for you to help answer some nagging questions for me. It all started many episodes ago 
when the two of you were talking about the ability for someone to scan the residual information on a hard drive and detect the original bits that were overwritten by new data. Regarding this first part, I was wondering what type of equipment would you have to use to detect the residual magnetic field on a hard drive? Specifically, is it small enough to be contained in a standard hard drive case? Hmm. Outside of this thought process, I've been trying to adapt a bug into a feature. Well, if the answer to the first question allows, uh, allows it to be possible, could you manufacture a hard drive to write over data and still detect it, essentially doubling the capacity of a drive? Also, if current hard drive heads can detect these fields effectively enough, could some smart programmer create new drivers to double the capacity of existing drives? Thanks a lot for the great show. It really gets one thinking. So let me explain what Carl's saying. Since you can theoretically read erase data, why don't we just record double the data on a hard drive and use that technique to uh, to read both? Well, um, <laughs> can you use baby words? <laughs> it's it's not as crazy as really? it sounds. Uh, well, um, there are, and we mentioned this before, there are multi-level um, flash RAM storage. There is, there are, because, because um, flash storage is trying to grow in density, um, one of the tricks that's being used in flash storage is to, to store analog values in the individual cells. So that rather than just having an individual bit cell be either fully discharged or fully charged, they're deliberately storing multiple levels of charge in the cell and in essentially storing more than one bit per bit in the cell. Now it works there because the tolerances are sufficient that you are reliably able to get, you know, to, to, to determine what the charge is in the cell um, um, by, by essentially by dumping the charge out of the cell. You transfer the charge out of the cell in the process of doing so, you're able to see how much charge there was, and with with sufficient resolution, you're able to to create a a multi-level charge per bit cell in non-volatile memory. Um, the problem with hard drives are many. Um, um, mostly, this is a an extremely unreliable process more than anything else. Um, you know, it's 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 more than theoretically possible to determine what data was on the drive before, but it is far from reliable enough that that you could count on that happening. The only way that that would be feasible would be if you really cranked up the error correction technology such that large chunks of areas and individual bits that couldn't be determined could be corrected across. The problem with doing that is that error correction technology is essentially works by by correcting bursts of errors. That is, groups of bits that you cannot determine because that tends to be the way errors occur. There's a physical defect on the hard drive. The physical defect is larger than many bits. So many bits are swallowed by that. Therefore, you need an error correction system that's able to straddle across the entire dead zone created by 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 the physical defect on the drive. Speaking um, of physical defects just <laughs> my microphone just fell over. Sorry about that. <laughs> so so 
um, the 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 nature of trying to recover individual bits from underneath that have been essentially that have been deliberately overwritten by super strong bits is that you would you would scatter your inability to recover across the drive error correction burst burst style error correction wouldn't be feasible and you you end up with so much overhead trying to correct that that it's better just not to try so so bottom line is i mean you could you could theoretically do it one of the other problems would be this is this the technology would radically slow down your storage you know you you you'd read off the most recently recorded data then you'd have to switch into a mode where you're struggling really hard over a great period of time to subtract that data from to, to, to subtract that that massively strong signal from from the signal you're reading in order to ascertain what was there before i mean it just you know it's it's not practical or or feasible for any number of reasons it makes sense in the narrow case of of forensic analysis where where some you know some agency on a governmental scale desperately needs to know what was underneath the most recent recently written data, but it's just not practical on a on a daily basis. Wow! And I besides, would have, I would have wait thought, a, huh? Just wait a week, and the drives will double <laughs> in size all anyway. by themselves. Oh, yeah. Well, they are doing tricks that uh, that involve kind of layers and so forth. So it's not it's not so crazy as all that, really. Yeah. Yeah. Carl Schweitzer. Oh, no, that was him. Blake Steinwand in Minnesota wants to get a better handle on Windows security. Hey, Stephen Leo, I was just listening to a Security Now episode from a couple of weeks ago, and I wanted to inquire further about uh, what you said about uh, Vista XP security. That was last week. You mentioned other OSs being more secure than Windows. In fact, this seems to be conventional wisdom and seemingly a, quote, fact, according to most people. I seem to think that while Windows sees by far the most action concerning security vulnerabilities, is also under the most frequent attack by far. Uh, actually, I disagree, but I'll explain why in a second. Just thought I would uh, ask to know what you thought about this. Seeing as security to me means more than just how many vulnerabilities are found per week when comparing two software products. I think the ratio of bad guys attacking Windows is so large compared to other OSs, comparing the security of them is much more complex than most think. Am I way off base on this one? Sorry, this got a little long. Thanks for all you guys do. Signed, Blake. So what do you think, Leo? Well, I have to say that what you're overlooking is, yes, of course, there are far more Windows. There's, what is it, a, almost a billion installations of Windows out there. But don't you think web servers get attacked an awful lot, too? And uh, they're running Linux. I mean, they're the they actually the ones, in many cases, Linux or BSD or some other Unix uh, form. They're the kind of a presenting face of a lot of computers to the outside world. Many Windows machines, most Windows machines, are probably sitting behind routers. So uh, if you want just to, you know, the face of attack, I think a lot of it is going against Unix uh, variants. Do you agree? Although, yeah, although in, in that particular instance, there, the, the, it, it's, the, it's not the OS itself that's being attacked, not the core OS. Typically, it's, it's an it's insecure, yeah. it, well, it's, it's an insecure application like PHP. Right. And so it's, it's code, it, it's like it's, it's higher level code running on a web-exposed surface of the server. Right. Um, one of the problems I think that Windows has is that it's never staying the same. That is, it's, it's inherently evolving. It's, Microsoft is continuing to mess with it and, and add new features and, and services. 
um, you know, now we have the whole new .NET thing, a whole new API that was added, you know, after we already had an existing Windows API, because they said, oh, no, you know, we're going to make it better in a whole number of new ways. Well, they have, they still have the old API. They still have support for the 16-bit API and for DOS. And now we have .NET. And who knows what's going to come next? I mean, now now we're looking at, at an increase of Java applications and JavaScript being run by clients on Windows. You know, like like the example we talked about with Chrome last week, Leo, where where you're running, you know, um, Google Mail in a, a in a Chrome application window. So so I I wanted to to bring this question up because it is something that comes up a lot, and the question is, you know. What's more secure? Right. Um, I would argue that the the thing that is targeted least is probably probably more secure <laughs> effectively. Effectively, because, right? Yeah. Yes, effectively. Yeah. Now, I mean, one of the benefits of Windows is that it's being pounded on all the time. Problems are being found all the time, and they're, be fi- they're being fixed all the time. The problem is, though, then that it's constantly changing. Microsoft is also introducing new problems all the time. Every patch has the potential to introduce a, a, a flaw. Well, and Leo, look, just try running Windows Update. You have to reboot and run Windows Update right. when you install XP because the security patches have security patches, and then once you get them patched, they've got patches. So, I mean, it just proves the fact that that Microsoft's you know, updates are buggy and are introducing new problems that then need to be fixed. So, so I don't I know. Think I mean, it's it, often said that FreeBSD is the most secure only because it was designed to be secure from the ground up. Windows, uh, I, you know. Now do you mean FreeBSD or OpenBSD? Uh, or net- uh, oh, now I'm confused. There's Free, Open, and Net, and I can't remember which one is the considered. Open, open, is is open? Gen- yeah. Okay. I think Open is generally considered to be you know, massively secure. Right. I, I run free written, written intent intentionally to be secure. Yes. So I think when you see Windows was not uh, because security wasn't an issue when let's say we're, we're running on the NT code base. We're not running Windows 98, obviously, but on the end. But even when NT was designed, it wasn't really the issue. Well, and frankly, there was security. I mean, NT was designed with security in mind from the beginning and the original architecture of NT was much more secure than what Microsoft has devolved it into. That's Remember true. that N- NT had a strong client-server model. Right. There was the kernel, and then there were the the user exes. Remember that the, the, the user thirty-two DLL kernel and GDI were all operating in user space, but that wasn't high enough performance. Microsoft wanted more performance. Well, there was a tr- I mean it was deliberately not high enough performance in the beginning because the original architects wanted to to separate the kernel from applications running in user space. Microsoft said, "Oh, look, if we just move GDI down into the kernel, we'll have many fewer kernel user space transitions and we'll get a performance boost because, you know, we want the system to be snappy." Well, what did we hear last week? GDI plus right. that was added to XP was a source of a huge number of vulnerabilities. Right. And, and those vulnerabilities were much more serious after Microsoft moved that code into the kernel than they would have been had it stayed outside. So you, so you could argue that Microsoft is, in this case, is their own worst enemy, whereas decisions are being made, for example, in the case of OpenBSD Unix, 
to, I mean, where security is first, they're doing nothing to lessen it. Microsoft just can't help themselves because they keep believing that the, the next thing they do is going to be secure, even though nothing they've done so far ever has been. Well, they also live in a different world. They have to uh, work with uh, businesses. They have to, you know, it's a different environment. I'm looking at the OpenBSD site. It says only two remote holes in the default install in more than 10 years. I'd have to say that's a pretty good record. That's phenomenal. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I guess we'll give them props uh, for that. Um, but it's a different environment. You can, you know, you're not, uh, you're not customer driven. You're security driven. So you only do those things that make sense from a security point of view and customers uh, be damned. Because if well, but if, there's also, uh, you know, I've always I, I I've always given Microsoft the benefit of the doubt when it comes to bugs. Anyone can have bugs. I mean, yes, we wish there were fewer yes, of them. Yes. My big my big complaint with Microsoft is over policy, because, for example, for so many years, it was their policy to run services by default. And even today, you know. I'll install XP in a system that has never seen a wireless card, has no Wi-Fi at all, yet wireless zero configuration service is running yeah. by default. Yeah, no reason Why? For that. Yeah. I mean, it's nuts. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and similarly, remember we were talking about kill bits. I've been thinking about this some more. This notion of, of the, that, that VMware, in their update last week, flipped the, the kill bits that has enabled the kill bits of their of their ActiveX controls. That was such a great policy from a security standpoint. All ActiveX controls ought to be marked as not executable by IE unless they are explicitly known to be IE required, rather than the other way around. As it is now, it's called a kill bit rather than than a live bit. <laughs> it it you know it ought to be the live bit instead right. of the kill bit, and it ought to be off normally and only turned on if you know that this is something that Internet Explorer could be expected to use. Instead, we've given IE access to all the ActiveX controls in Windows. I mean, that's just dumb. Right. I mean, that that's clearly on its face. That's like wrong, but. That's not the way Microsoft thinks. Right. But I, I'll defend them because they have a different imperative. And their imperative is uh, much more complex. You know, they don't want to piss people off. They've got to make the vendors happy, the independent software vendors happy. They've got to make business happy. And that's really yeah, how Once we end up with things like UAC that bug people to right. death so much right. that they just, they abandon they this to yeah. Exp- yeah. Yeah. It, but uh, it's a difficult situation. I mean, I think that they have a they have a very difficult um, uh, issue that they have to face, and it's you know it's non trivial their their issues. Well, and complexity is the enemy of security, yes. as we've often said. Yes. And yes. Uh, you know, it's it's you know, once upon a time, DOS was three files. Now, <laughs> no no one knows how many files. <laughs> That's a lot. Thomas Paulson in Nordland, Norway, shares his clever security and usage restriction solution involving OpenDNS. Hi, Steve. I'm a proud owner of SpinRate, longtime listener of Security Now. My top 10 list of favorite netcasts consists of all Leo's publications. With Thank you, Thomas. With Security Now in a definite number one position. My jaw dropped to the floor as you detailed the recent DNS spoofing attacks. I was amazed at the creative solution to adding entropy to DNS requests by using capital letters. Well, mixed case, right? 
The jaw again dropped as I heard the SEAL team get out of a real tight spot using Spinrite. The show you produce is, in my humble opinion, entertainment at its finest. Thank you. Thank you, Thomas. So here's his open DNS story. I work as a senior consultant in IT, and one of my clients is a private high school. They run a network for their students on a separate ADSL line, and they're using a Cisco, Cisco PIX 501 for security. We've got to get them moved to a Star since the PIX is being phased out. Yep. I thought the same thing when yeah, I read that. Yeah. The network is all wireless with somewhere around 10 Linksys APs access points providing network access on campus. They have a policy for students that only normal internet access is permitted, but... Budget restraints and a lack of IT knowledge has kept them from enforcing the policy. Students take advantage of this, of course, and use the network for heavy downloading and peer-to-peer file sharing, rendering the network mostly unusable for the rest of the student body wanting to surf the web or download email. Aware of services like WebSense, which the Cisco unit supports, they've been unable to afford any subscription services. Oh, we got to get them, Astaro. And their limited knowledge of the firewall has kept them from blocking traffic selectively. Anyway, many peer-to-peer clients use the HTT port or dynamic ports, so blocking them on the protocol level would be an exercise in futility. Or they use encryption now and all sorts of stuff. So as I was driving down to see them, I was listening to Security Now and Open DNS was mentioned. I had, of course, heard about it previously and was using it on my home network. I then started wondering, hey, maybe Open DNS would be usable for what my client needed. I got so excited I had to stop my car and jot down a quick plan. As I later tried to explain this to my client, I got that glazed look. You know, you often get when the level you're explaining something is 10 notches higher than the recipient is able to process. So I assured him this would save them some serious bandwidth and I got the go for setting things up. I created an account with OpenDNS for the high school and set up the official static IP address of the school as the network in the OpenDNS dashboard. This is, by the way, a really nice feature of OpenDNS they, they introduced a, not too long ago that lets you configure your machines by IP address. I then configured some other options, blocking categories of sites like peer-to-peer, anonymous proxies, a few others. I then went to work on the firewall and configured it with just three simple access rules. All, uh, one, allow UDP port 53 to only the OpenDNS DNS servers. Is 53 DNS? Yep. Okay. So, in other words, you couldn't use another DNS server. Right. Allow HTTP, TPS, SMTP, POP3, IMAP, FTP, FTP data to any network. Otherwise, drop all other packets. By the way, that is pretty much the way I would configure any router. You know? This setup would make sure that the only DNS servers allowed were the open DNS, should some students try to mess with the IP configuration of his or her computer, which they would inevitably. Of course. Yeah, first thing I'd try. Also, the only port protocols that would be usable were the approved major internet ports. The results were immediate and dramatic. The hit count on block networks was ticking away feverishly, and bandwidth usage came down dramatically. All those students must have been really <laughs> miffed. Oh man, the stats at OpenDNS give you an additional. That OpenDNS gives you are an additional boon. This is really a nice feature, by the way. You can, and this is all free, which I love. You can quickly see if there are false positives among the domains being blocked and tune them accordingly. I realize this isn't a foolproof situation, but it really gives the high school a great layer of control over the students' internet usage, all for the great price of free. Again, thanks for a great netcast and thanks for a great solution. That is really awesome. I think that's a very clever solution. Well, I wanted to share this with our listeners because I could just imagine how many other listeners yeah. might have applications for this sort of solution. The The configuration of the firewall is very simple. You allow UDP port 53 
only to the open DNS servers. The only place it can go. So as you as you mentioned, Leo, what that prevents is it, it prevents any students from configuring a different, explicitly configuring a different DNS server for their machines. Um, so what that means, of course, is that that they have to use Open DNS. Then, by using the DNS dashboard, which is configured based on the source IP of incoming requests, that is, he configured the dashboard to the school's public IP address. So that tells Open DNS who is asking, which allows Open DNS to apply restriction rules on which types of sites by major classification like peer to peer transparent proxies and so forth which ones it will respond to so suddenly many of the games that these students were playing are shut down completely we now sure you could use an explicit ip if you knew it but we've talked about the problems of doing that because as soon as you go to a site that's that that even by ip more often than not, you're bounced around and you're back into domain names. And and again, if it's something that Open DNS doesn't want, doesn't will won't be willing to look up for you, then there's nothing you can do. And then finally, he he simply allowed just port eighty and and four four three and twenty five and one ten and you know the and um you know the the, the obvious the, canonical report yes web reports. basically web email and ftp to allow the students to you know surf the net to sites that are are fine and to transfer files and to do email so so you know and and this is what the school's policy always was but of course the students weren't abiding by it because they're you know they're students now, now that that's what they're going to do so I thought this was, and as he said, it's it's simple to establish the firewall. The open DNS service that is part of the filtering solution um, works beautifully, and it's simple to configure and free. It's it's just really excellent. Um, I, I I have to say I I've been using this for some time. I have a home configuration, an office configuration, which is by IP address. Um, you can you can totally control what you're doing, blocked domains and so forth. Um, I I have to say this is. OpenDNS is providing a very valuable uh, free service to users. And you combine that. I mean, you need the firewall to make sure people are forced to use it. Precisely. Yeah. But I just think this is a, a an excellent choice. So good. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with us. That's very, very cool. Let's move on to our next call here. Uh, ben Jacques in Des Moines, Iowa, wants to know what if, what fixed means. In the last Security Now, you said that Google had fixed the EULA, but what does this mean? <laughs> Could you repaired? Could you please explain in the next Security Now? Thanks. They had a broken EULA. They had a broken EULA. Got their EULA fixed. Uh, yeah, it does sound like an operation of some kind, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Your uvula. Yeah. This is yes. the Chrome. We were talking about the Chrome EULA, which now I haven't looked to see what they've changed, but. Uh, they immediately what, what, apologized. They said, our bad. Uh, we, yes, we use they, boilerplate language and we will fix it. In fact, one of the main Google guys who was blogging, I guess he was orig- he was initially sort of snide and, and I think sort of snotty uh, in his first responses. And he later apologized, which I thought was very nice. And he said, I, I should have understood that we were really wrong. And I, I want to apologize for the nature of my initial reactions upon, you know, 
having people being upset right. with the way we were behaving. Um, you'll you'll remember that when we, when we first talked about it two weeks ago, when this first when Chrome first appeared, their their standard boilerplate EULA, the End User License Agreement (EULA), it stated that they own the rights to anything you did with your browser, like, I mean, any data that you posted anywhere using the browser as the interface to Web 2.0 style sites. And, you know, and my reaction was, well, okay, <laughs> so no one is going to ever use this browser. I mean, there's just none. It was ridiculous. It was right, ludicrous. Right. And, you know, immediately they they said, whoops. And and in what may well have been an oversight despite the fact that this browser has been in the works for two years, they said, our bad. Um, what we meant to say was that you retain the copyrights to anything you already had the rights to. So you're giving us nothing that is yours. Any copyrights you you have, you retain. And so it's like, oh, which is why last week we began to entertain the idea that maybe Chrome had a future. Huh. Which that idea will quickly be, you will be disabused of in moments. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, they just took that paragraph out. It didn't say we assert copyright. It just said you keep the copyright, but but we get to do anything we want. We get a, a non-exclusive license to reproduce, adapt, modify, translate, publish, publicly perform, publicly display, and distribute any content that you create with the browser. So, but that, you know, that's, a, I have to say in their defense, that's exactly the kind of boilerplate you see. Uh, it's it was in you know if you've ever if you've signed it a few times the tech tv uh, uh release form basically yeah, sure. says that we reserve the right to use your likeness and anything you 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 do on here in perpetuity in all media ever conceived of in any time in any place in the future wait 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 did i, did, you I signed did it I, several I times it? <laughs> yeah it's it's it was kind of surprisingly broad and a couple of people said whoa but that's pretty typical. And all it's yeah. saying is, look, we're going to we're going to do an interview with you. We, we want to be able to use this. Uh, and we may, you know, someday there may be some virtual cube presentation we'd like to do, but we never heard of. So we'd like to be able to do that. Um, and by the way, they still retain those rights. And G4 Comcast now has them. I don't know mm-hmm. what they're going to do with it, but I I don't you know, none of us have any rights to anything we did on tech TV. Right. That's pretty typical. And I think that that just leaked in because they just they were too lazy to write a new one or maybe. <laughs> Maybe, as some people think, they thought they could sneak it by and then... No, I, I, I don't... I can't even imagine that. It was so bad. It I mean, it, bad. it just... you know, it, I mean, it said so clearly, we own everything you do. Right, right. That's not right. It's like... Uh, yeah. So it's fixed. He yes, took that paragraph out. Corby in Reno, Nevada shares his different view of Google's Chrome browser. A browser in quotes, I might add. Hi, Steve. Not for a second do I think Google's trying to compete in the browser market. How could anyone compete with Mozilla? Rather, Google is making a new platform to deliver their web-based apps. I think that's basically what I've been saying. I'm sure they're finding that the current browsers are too limited for what they want to do. They don't need to be concerned about all the issues about Chrome that you mentioned in uh, in your recent episode. We'll have the Firefox browser running side-by-side with with Chrome as a Google app machine. It might look like a browser. That's just a side effect. Soon their apps will have APIs that only Chrome will know, and only Chrome will be able to run them. I disagree with that. I don't think they're going to do that. And it, that would be crazy. And if we thought Microsoft once had a monopoly, just wait till Google controls the apps and the data. Call me paranoid. We've seen this cycle before, but it's going to be coming at us faster and bigger than ever. You think that's going to happen? I don't think it's going to happen. But, I mean, I, w- I wanted to share Corby's view 
Um, I think the problem is that it is a browser rather than being a, a simple app machine. And so it does need to offer the features that, that contemporary browsers have. Because people will use it that way. Well, they will. I mean, yeah. a, and they'll get bitten by its lack of security and privacy features right. unless they're very careful. I mean, it's, I think it's very clear that, and by the way, Chrome's share has continued to fall. Oh, interesting. Uh, as people have, have uninstalled it. And, uh, well, for what good that does, we'll, we'll cover that in the next question. But um, it's, it's unfortunate that, in, in my opinion, that it's not as is a, a highly useful browser. You know, the, everything that they were, they were doing in terms of the work they've done with the security model profiles it as wanting to be a mainstream web browser. So, I mean, certainly there is a problem if their apps won't run in non-Chrome browsers. I, I can see that Google, Google wanted their own platform, wanted to own a platform that their future apps are going to run in. I don't understand how it forces other browsers to follow if their apps run in the other browsers without any modification. So, I mean, it, it, it is sort of, a, it's a strange, it's, it's a, a strange animal, in my opinion. Yeah. I'm looking to see if, uh, see my, see if it's changed. The browser uh, usage has changed. You say, uh, you're, you're seeing a drop-off, huh? Yep, I did see below 0.9. Let me, uh, I have to select, let's see, just uh, just this week. Let's try. Oh, I, I see. Your, your own uh, Twit browser. Yeah, I, you know, that's because, of course, our audience is really sophisticated. So uh, I would imagine that they would be very quick to try it, but that it would drop off. Yeah, it's now 7%, which is down a little bit, but it's still a, that's still a fairly large percentage. 8,000 people still using it. Firefox, 56%. Internet Explorer, 18%. Safari, 13.9%. Chrome, 7%. So it's down a little bit, but but not but you know oddly enough not as much as uh, it is globally. So I think our audience they like this stuff. They like to use the latest greatest, don't they? Yeah, just wait. <laughs> All right, let's get to our last question in just a second. The bad Chrome assume. <laughs> I like that. But before we do, I want to mention our sponsor, Astaro, the great folks at Astaro who who give us such secure feelings. Because Astaro created the Astaro Security Gateway. And, you know, if you're using a PIX, as our, uh, as our correspondent Thomas from Norway was, the PIX 501, that, that, those are all end-of-line appliances. Astaro will give you a great discount if you want to move to Astaro, something that is not merely end-of-line, but really up-to-date. In fact, their Astaro up-to-date uh, automatic updating feature really is important. Not only does it update the three antivirus engines that are on the Astaro Security Gateway, but it constantly patches... All the subscriptions are there, and it's a very affordable subscription, too. The best thing to do is to try it. 877-427-8276. That's the number in the U.S. That's 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. But Astaro is an international company. And if you go to astaro.com, you can find out the local number in Norway and so forth. They're everywhere in the world. Astaro version 7 is amazing. Everything is in there. I mean, it's, of course, the best firewall intrusion protection. But you also get uh, something like a school would love this SSL VPN, which makes it very easy for students off campus to log into the campus network securely, safely, and easily for the students. 
built-in S-MIME or OpenPGP encryption, decryption, and signing. Now, that's given students a lot of security or any business. If you're a home user or you want to try it out on a beige box, you can. T- there's a virtual machine from VMware you can try for free, or you can go to astaro.com slash security now and download it. And the neat thing is Astaro with this new V7 package is now giving you Astaro up-to-date free. It used to be 70 euros a year, and now it's free. 79 euros. That's for the home users and non-commercial users. Business users, you can get a demo for free. Just call them. 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. Astaro. When you think security, think the Astaro Security Gateway. We thank them so much for their support of security now. Steve Arino, are you ready? <sighs> the bad yep. chromosome from Richard Chow of Fullerton, California. Steve, when I installed Chrome, it apparently also installed some plugins into my Firefox 3. What? Uh-huh. Then after I uninstalled Chrome, the plugin and files remained in the Mozilla Firefox directory. I was able to disable the plugin, but when I went into the Mozilla Firefox program files in the C directory to remove the folder called Chrome, it broke my copy of Firefox. <gasps> this is not good. Firefox was easy to remove and install, but I'm worried about reinstall, but I'm worried about IE. Have you heard anything about whether Chrome installs files in IE or not? This is yep. another reason to install uh, to avoid Chrome. I was never asked by Google if I wanted a Chrome plug-in, it just did it. Wow, this is the first I've heard of this. Uh, what's the story, Steve? Um, it's bad. That's terrible. Um, um, you, I remember you, I was thinking how you chuckled when I told you I, was, I just created a VMware container. Yeah, you were right. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. Get this. When you install Chrome with no notification at all, it installs plugins for Firefox 3. <gasps> And IE, it instantiates a browser helper object in ActiveX <sighs> Control for IE, an add-on under plugins called Google Update. It also runs a Google Update service um, in your system and deliberately leaves all of that in place after you remove it. Hi, this is Leo. I want to interrupt here because uh, th- this is uh, somewhat t- after the show was recorded. Um, After the show was recorded, Steve did a little more research and was able to verify that Google Update does remove itself from the PC, not immediately, but sometime after Chrome has been removed. That Google says this in their own help documents at the Google site. Um, So he's going to test this more extensively, but perhaps it's not as bad as it seems. Also, want to let you know that uh, we've found out, thanks to our chat room, that the Chrome folder that our correspondent Removed, in fact, isn't Google Chrome, but Firefox Chrome. It's a critical part of the Firefox user interface. So removing that Chrome folder from Firefox will, yeah, it'll disable Firefox because it is part of Firefox. And even if you haven't installed Chrome, you'll have that folder. In any event, I wanted to let you know that uh, it may not be as bad as it seems, but Steve is going to take this next week to do some research, and uh, we will get you the update on what Google is doing with Chrome, what update is doing, uh, after uh, after it installs itself. And frankly, I asked him to also maybe take a look at some other applications like Apple Safari that may, in fact, have exactly the same behavior. All right, we now return you to our show, which is already in progress. All right. Well, we're going to do more research on this and get back to you uh, next week with more about exactly what this is doing. Yes. All right. Hey, thank you, Steve Gibson. Fascinating stuff. Go to grc.com to find out more about what is going on in your world when it comes to security. 
grc.com. You've got the show notes there. You've got the 16 kilobit version of the show. Of course, uh, you've also got all of Steve's cool stuff like Shields Up, his many uh, free security programs and utilities too, like Wismo. And let's not forget, of course, the, the crown jewel in the operation, Spinrite, the world's finest disk maintenance and recovery utility. It's all there at grc.com. And I want to take a look at what exactly is going on. Apparently, Google's updater is installed by a lot of other Google applications as well. This is something that's kind of part of a Google package that you okay. automatically get. But it should, and again, this is, by the way, what Oriet said is, well, we can't uninstall Oriet. It might be installed by other applications. Yeah. So they, their Chrome probably says, well, we don't know if you've got Google Earth installed or Google Toolbar, so we can't uninstall these updates. Uh, because you might have other things. I, you know, I'm. I have to say, if you're using Google at this point, uh, you might want to reassess your association with Google. I certainly am. Thank you, Steve. Talk to you next week, my friends. Security now.